Welcome to Untold Stories of Perth. This episode features a larger-than-life mining tycoon from the first half of the 20th century who, with self-confidence and charm, was able to attract vast amounts of money for his ventures in Western Australia. He even developed iconic sites in Perth, such as London Court in the city. Yet he was dogged later in life by controversy and intrigue. I'm Iris Vardy, and together with Ryan Zaknich of Two Feet in a Heartbeat, we will be exploring the fascinating life of Claude de Benales. Ryan, this is a real-life rags-to-riches, then-back-to-rags story infused with intrigue and accusations of skullduggery. Hi, Iris. It is indeed. De Benales, he was the son of a distinguished Spanish father and an American mother, and he came out to Perth in 1897 from Brixton in London with just five quid in his pocket. Now, he was 21 years old, and he was, like many other people, lured by the prospects of gold. He ended up getting a job in a machinery company in the goldfields and something kind of hit him immediately. And that was that mines may have gold, but all mines must have machinery. He effectively cornered the machinery supply market and his path was set. Um, he was described as tall, dignified and persuasive and had what we would refer to today as people skills. He was also very dapper in his dress and became known as Handsome Deb. Yeah, I love how the Kalgoorlie miner on January the 29th in 1949 wrote the following headline, Colourful Basque, and they described him as follows. De Benales himself had the reputation of being the most immaculate man on the West Australian goldfields. Travelling the dusty fields on a push bike in his young days, he carried a little bag. Arriving at a mine, he would nip into the men's change room to don a spotless shirt and collar before presenting himself to the manager as a machine peddler. On all occasions, he was the handsome, tall, charming and dominating De Benales. Ryan, it seems to me from the start that he really understood the importance of creating a good impression. And it also seems to me that he really tried to inspire trust and to make others believe that together they really could make a lot of money. Um, and I think that this really worked for him because by the 1930s, he'd built tremendous wealth. So... When we look at his transformation from being a travelling salesman to a tycoon, I think we can see many lessons. Now, first is a lesson, well, obviously in wealth creation, but there's also a lesson in wealth decimation, isn't there? There is indeed, Iris, and we can see how he operated in many ways. And one example is through the Kalgoorlie foundry, which supplied mining equipment. The closest comparable foundry to his in Kalgoorlie was all the way over in Adelaide. So if you needed any mining machinery, he essentially had your business and there was always a large capital outlay with this kind of machinery, but he would structure it in such a way that repayments could be made over a number of years, but he would also put in safeguards to protect his interests. So for instance, if you were unable to pay for whatever reason, he would generally get the machinery back. He would be able to resell that. He would keep the money that had been paid by the client to that time. And in some way, shape or form, he would get an element of rights over your land that you are no longer mining. And in time, if you get enough of this land, you can consolidate it, you can maximise what's in the ground as well as machinery. Either way, he was going to make more money because he had the machinery and now vast amounts of gold. He also controlled other associated service providers such as Swan Cement and the Hampton Timber Company. So Ryan, how did he turn the servicing of mining companies into actually becoming a mining tycoon himself? Well, his plan came off. People would default and he would acquire land and invest in the rebirthing of their mines. So these were mines that had previously been mined and abandoned for various reasons, often under 
a, a misguided belief that the mine didn't have any gold left in it. But De Benali's would dig deeper or wider and often find there were still vast quantities of gold left in the ground. Uh, it was a numbers game and the more reborn mines explored the higher chance of a greater yield overall. And he started going to London to raise money for these ventures in WA. He became this connection personified between the old world and the crazy riches in the colony. He became the darling of London investors, media, politicians, and anyone who was anyone. And he was responsible for millions of pounds of international investment. And without him, it's hard to know how that part of history turns out. Yeah, and of course, with this link to London and fundraising, he built the iconic London court. And I'm guessing he did it so that London investors could feel like there was a bit of home here in WA, even if it does resemble a bit that 16th century London. But of course, things didn't really keep going well for him. Um, on the 10th of January in 1947, Darwin's Northern Standard newspaper ran the following headline, large-scale frauds might involve Claude de Benalis. So how did he get from being the darling of investors to being accused of fraud? Well, it would seem that when he began his gold interests, he set up a complex network of businesses to place his family enterprise right in the centre to supply the whole industry. And he was unashamed about that. It's reported that he was abiding to all the laws at the time when it was established, but as his empire kept growing and growing, these business complexities were brought into question by people who had ultimately lost their fortunes in some failed mines. Which um, I think brings us to the pivotal role of William Grunt, and he was someone who became a tributor, that is a person who mines another's land and pays a royalty for their fines. William Grunt, a Norwegian, he legally mined on De Benali's land, and then he also bought up big on shares and managed to become a major shareholder in one of Dibanali's companies. However, it was found he was also tributing and taking gold from land that he didn't have a permit for. And Dibanali's cancelled all of his tributes at that point. And Grunt became disgruntled. And in retaliation in the late 1930s, early 1940s, Grunt led a team of dissatisfied shareholders and sued Dibanali's. And to give you an idea of this group of that he put together, uh, it involved... Him, one barrister, so someone from the legal, a stockholder, one shareholder, and it looked like they'd all only known each other for a very short period of time. And the suit strongly focused on the structure of De Benali's businesses. So while they were apparently established legally, they were certainly not what we would consider now to be at arm's length. It's actually incredible to see the ripple effect that was about to take place, brought on by Grunt and his group. Yeah, and World War II was also raging about this time, and wars are very expensive. Um, there was an 87% tax on profits that went to the federal government for the war effort, leaving only 13% for shareholders. And inevitably, many shareholders actually lost their investments and a revolt grew and it grew around the face of mining Dibanali's. Yeah, but a royal commission at the time in the UK dismissed allegations of him being a scoundrel. So why his downfall? Well, there was a bubble forming and it actually became known as the Australian gold bubble. The problem was that his strategy of investing in reborn mines was highly speculative, like all mining. If a few were to fail at the same time, the house of cards could tumble down, and that's exactly what did. The UK stock market took notice of these fraud allegations and of mine failure, and what that did was trigger some things to happen automatically, and they suspended dealings in every single one of Claude DiBanali's companies, and then that automatically triggered investigation by the Board of Trade. And so at this point, De Benali's is fighting wars on four different fronts. He's battling one with the stock exchange, one with the litigation from Grunt, the, the Norwegian tributor, 
one with the Board of Trade and another one that he was trying to move his companies from the UK to Australia to avoid paying double taxes. Okay, so allegations have been made, profits are getting lower, there's pressure from all directions, but really when the findings of various reports come in, he's vindicated and there's no conclusive evidence of any crime found. It seems that's the way, but when the media starts going one way and The Economist in 1941 published an article which crucified De Banali's and because of these events taking place, his companies began to miss some tax obligations and his house of cards collapsed. So his downfall actually was brought about by controversy, accusations and a cloud of suspicion. Was he ever actually charged with any crimes at all or did he ever have to stand trial at all? No, not at all. In fact, in 1946, Scotland Yard came out to WA to further investigate the circumstances around De Benali's and his group of companies. And when they left, they took 100 kilograms of documents and these were placed under lock and key for 75 years, which means that they will be released very shortly in 2025. And when De Benalis was 75 years old, the Solicitor General determined him not fit to stand trial. And by 1953, as the House of Cards collapsed, he was in total liquidation. Most of his assets were sold and he moved back to a town called Selsey near the Isle of Wight. And he lived there as somewhat as a recluse. He did return to Perth once in 1958, but it can't say that his uh, return was any triumphant. And in 1963, his heart gave out and he died in London at the age of 88 years old. Well, it really looks like we're going to have to wait until 2025 to see those Scotland Yard documents. And I think only then will we have any idea about whether to vindicate or incriminate the legendary Claude de Benales. Well, thank you, Ryan, for illuminating in such fabulous detail the life of Claude de Benales. My pleasure. And if any listeners want to see a real life snapshot of his life, you should definitely head down to the what's now called the Cottesloe Civic Centre. At the time, it was called Overton Lodge. It was his personal house. Wonderful. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us in this episode of Untold Stories of Perth, commissioned by the City of Perth. This episode was written and recorded in May 2020 by Ryan Zaknich and myself, Iris Vardy, from Two Feet and a Heartbeat. I look forward to your company in another of our Untold Stories of Perth podcast. <laughs>